Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I am Usnavi, and you probably never heard my name. Reports of my fame are greatly exaggerated. Morning, Usnavi. Pan caliente, café con leche. Some of the title song there from In the Heights, the new film adaptation of the Lin-Manuel Miranda stage musical. After a year delay and a steady stream of ecstatic early reviews, Heights comes to theaters this weekend. You know, my only criticism is that you sang all the way through our screening, Josh. <laughs> Aren't you glad press screenings are back, Adam? We can sit together again. <laughs> we can. This week on the show, we've got a review of In the Heights, plus our 7 from 76 Best Year Ever series wraps up in summary fashion with Michael Schultz's Car Wash. Wait till you hear my rendition of Car Wash, Adam. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. As eager as I am to hear your rendition of Car Wash, Josh, I am even more eager to hear what happened to your brain when you clicked play on the 1976 movie Car Wash and got to the part of the credits that read, written by Joel Schumacher. Yes. <laughs> I got to say, I, I wasn't completely floored because it triggered a faint memory of hearing about that, but I certainly didn't remember it going in. And that does pop up early on. Um, let's just say we'll probably get into this. His is one of many voices that seem to have gone into uh, what ultimately gave us car wash. Okay. A tease. Our 7 from 76 Best Year Ever series concludes this week with Car Wash, a cult ensemble comedy featuring memorable appearances by Richard Pryor, George Carlin, the Pointer Sisters, and others. That's later in the show. But first, a movie with even more music than Car Wash, In the Heights. A dream isn't some sparkly diamond. There's no shortcuts. Sometimes it's rough. In the Heights! I'm a street light choking on the heat. They're talking about kicking out all the dreamers. But every day is different, so it's time to make some noise. We had to assert our dignity in small ways. Just listen. Little details that tell the world we are not invisible. Ignore anyone who doubts you. Early word about In the Heights has been effusively positive in general and praising of star Anthony Ramos as a screen presence in particular. If you get the film spotting newsletter, you already know that this week producer Sam wrote about seeing hints of Ramos's potential in the filmed version of Hamilton. So I thought we might want to start there, Adam, to ask if this potential was realized for you. In this screen adaptation of Lin-Manuel Miranda's pre-Hamilton stage musical, Ramos plays Usnavi de la Vega, 
a 20-something New Yorker who's taken over a corner bodega from his late parents, but dreams of moving back to his native Dominican Republic. There are two other main characters whom we'll get to, but it's Usnavi who introduces us to his Washington Heights neighborhood in the movie's bravura pre-title sequence, which is a chance for Ramos to showcase his skills as a singer-slash-rapper, as a dancer, and just a general screen presence. Now, I'm deep into the NBA playoffs at the moment, Adam. Get it together, Bucks. So bear with me on this sports analogy. Player comps are a common thing, especially for rising stars. So when someone like Devin Booker gives a breakout performance, we ask, what basketball legend does this player's game remind you of? Watching Ramos break out in In the Heights, the comp question came to mind. So thinking back on movie musicals, Adam, I'm curious if there is an earlier talent that Ramos reminded you of in some way. And since comps are ultimately limiting, and honestly, they're not really in the spirit of a movie that's all about diversity and individuality, I'd also love to hear if you think there's one quality that Ramos seems to have all his own. Well, I might be able to give you a better comp for Devin Booker, and I don't even watch the NBA. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I might be in trouble, but I do love this question because I'm positive that you would only ask it if you had a perfect thesis, a perfect answer to your own question. And that means you've got a great name that you're ready to pull out, or you're going to explain how there isn't a comp. And that's what makes Anthony Ramos so special. And that maybe is what makes In the Heights so special. And it's possible I'm overlooking someone obvious. I suppose I'll go to the obvious here and say that he's way more Gene Kelly than Fred Astaire due to his build, yeah. his his physicality. I don't know that graceful or elegant is the most appropriate word for Ramos, but this movie also isn't, and maybe you can disagree with me on this, it isn't really a showcase for his singing, as I think a lot of the numbers, his numbers in particular, are more hip-hop inspired, and I don't think he has any really extensive dance sequences that maybe show off an abundance of moves, though he does move very well. But the irony of your question is that I did have a comp in mind while watching In the Heights. It just wasn't a legendary musical performer. It was just an actor and a very good one. And that's Michael B. Jordan. Hmm. There is a similar swagger to them. But it's the swagger combined with a little silliness, a little, a little goofiness even, and some warmth. There's, there's some depth to both of them. That all said, and I do think Ramos is very, very good here, back when Hamilton came out and I saw it on stage and I talked about it even because I was so taken with it, I talked about it here on the show. This is way pre-movie 2016, I think. One of the things I said about Lin-Manuel Miranda is, yes, he's Hamilton. Yes, he's the star of the show. But Hamilton is so good in large part because it's a showcase for everyone else. You come away from Hamilton not really thinking about Lin-Manuel Miranda, the performer. You come away thinking about Leslie Odom Jr. and David Diggs and Jonathan Groff and Philip Sue and Renee Elise Goldberry and... A snarky person listening might say, well, that's because they're more talented than Lin-Manuel Miranda. And whether that's true or not, I would just argue that that's because he is so generous in how he builds the show really almost more around them than his 
own character. And he gives them all those show-stopping numbers and moments. And I kind of feel like In the Heights is really similar in that way. Usnavi is what this movie is all built around, just like the bodega is the hub for the neighborhood. But it's all the faces coming and going every day and their stories that Lin-Manuel Miranda seems to most enjoy following and featuring. So just as much as I'm thinking about Ramos, I'm thinking about Corey Hawkins as Benny and Melissa Barrera as Vanessa and Leslie Grace as Nina. And actually, we were joking last week about whether or not I would remember any of the stage play we saw three or four years ago together and whether or not I'd be comparing it. I truly thought I would remember almost nothing (laughs) about that performance. And yet here, I was so taken with Corey Hawkins as Benny that it actually did occur to me that a key part of the play of the musical is his rivalry with Kevin, with the father to Nina, the woman he's in love with. And the fact that he doesn't think this is Jimmy Smith's character doesn't think that Benny is good enough for his daughter. He also has questions about him being good enough for his daughter because he's black. And they did excise all of that from the movie, which bugged me only to the extent that I felt like I got maybe short shrifted on how much more Corey Hawkins time I could have had. So I think this entire ensemble is really good. Yeah, Hawkins, I would say, is a standout among the ensemble, and it is an ensemble piece. It's an ensemble film. You mentioned the other two. There's almost like three main characters here. Usnavi, obviously, and then Nina, who you mentioned, played by Leslie Grace, sort of the the academic all-star of the neighborhood. And when we meet her, she's returning from a really difficult first year at Stanford, um, being there as uh, a minority student. And then Vanessa, played by Melissa Barrera, she's a nail technician dreaming of this fashion career downtown, and Usnavi and she begin dating as the movie gets underway. Uh, I like the Michael B. Jordan thought. I can see I can see some of that. I would maybe say that uh, Ramos has a softer swagger a little bit, which mm-hmm. is um, unique to him. It's funny. I did not have, I don't have the right answer <laughs> to this question. And I almost regretted coming up with it after I did, because I realized a few people popped into mind, but there wasn't a perfect answer. And maybe as you were saying, that's the answer is that Ramos has unique quality. The one old school person who did come to mind to me is Frank Sinatra. And again, it's not a one-to-one comparison, but I think of something like we talked about on the town as part of our Stanley Donnan marathon. Mm -hmm. Um, And Sinatra overall, I think is maybe more of a singer than a dancer when when he is yeah. in musicals. He does dance in something like Anchors Away. But what he has, especially in something like On the Town, and I think he shares with Ramos, is this genial enthusiasm in, in his musicals. He's sort of the host of the party. He has that air to him, which Ramos has here, you know, being our guide to the neighborhood. Um, that That's a common, it ties into some of the things you were saying that he shares with Michael B. Jordan, I think. Just this this welcomeness and then ge- this geniality to him. Mm-hmm. So Sinatra came to mind, but I don't think that's a perfect match uh, really at all. It's just one name. What I think stood out to me as really unique um, is an extension of this quality where Ramos brings that geniality and it's not only that he shares it with his co-stars and is generous in his scenes, but he 
he brings it off the screen right directly to us as the audience. He, when he's dancing in that opening, he's like dancing with us. It feels like, and, and of course, partly this is because uh, the director here, uh, John Chu is using direct address. Um, Usnavi is singing to the camera in that opening mm-hmm. section that allows for an instant connection. Uh, you could maybe say that his co-stars, Grace and Barrera are, more skilled or more multifaceted as singers and dancers or get more opportunities to show those skills. But Ramos is the one who knows how to look into the camera and make you believe that he's your best friend. And that, mm-hmm. you know, that's something that is a rare quality, um, not entirely unique to him, but I think does stand, make him stand apart. Even when I think back to some of these, some of those legends. So mm-hmm. yeah, he was absolutely um, maybe the highlight of this film for me. I, I almost wonder, I'm curious what you think about this, Adam. Do you think he could have been too good? Because you talk about this being a, an ensemble piece and a communal piece. Um, and I feel like, um, Ramos is so compelling that he kind of pulls away from Nina and Vanessa's stories. I guess I'll, I'll say this. Their stories lack the same narrative pull that than his does, no matter how many chances they're given to sing. I, I felt that a little bit. His magnetism just kind of drew all of our attention. And I, I found myself wanting more of his story, even though there's a somewhat awkward framing device that I think is new from the musical where yeah, he's, he's older it narrating it. I don't think that entirely works, gives him more screen time. Um, a, a, but I still think ultimately his magnetism almost pulls away from his co-stars. Not, he's not trying to do that completely generous performer. Um, but just, uh, I had that feeling throughout the film. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And whether or not that framing device entirely works or not to go back to your point about the connection we have with him as a character, he is, telling the story he's framing this so we recognize that he is seeing this whole narrative through his eyes so i think that does even make that connection deeper i guess i did feel a little bit differently than you josh only in that as i was expressing with lin-manuel miranda i think he likes to get sidetracked and kind of go down those paths with other characters and there was a moment here in in the heights where i realized it feels like we haven't been spending any time with Usnavi for a little bit. We've been exploring all of these other threads and characters, and then he does he does bring it back to him. So I'm not sure I ever felt like like Ramos and his magnetism and his charisma was too much for the film. And I think that also has to do with the fact that those other performers are so good, as we've both mentioned. And maybe we should just talk about that for a second, just kind of the the joy of watching this movie and watching these performers. And I'm going to preface this by saying that this is not me saying the movie is so exuberant and ecstatic. And I was so thrilled to be back in the theater, my second movie back in the theater that I was just kind of bursting with emotion watching it. You were sitting next to me. I wasn't, I wasn't bursting. Was I Josh? I didn't notice it. No. Okay. But this is me saying that, that musicals can be magical. And that's because sometimes a character can just open his or her mouth and proclaim something and, and basically announce themselves to the world and express with that one note, maybe even one word, everything they're feeling inside. They do it with such force that it actually can be overwhelming. I don't think I'm the only person who has this reaction to musicals. I think it's why a lot of us love musicals as much as we do. It kind of can take your breath away for a second. And In the Heights for me had, 
I don't know, at least a half dozen of those moments, maybe more. And this is another strength of the movie, reinforcing my point about all the other characters and the ensemble is there was at least one per character. It wasn't like they were all for me, Anthony Ramos moments. It's it's every character in the film, even the the truly peripheral ones. They all get their moment and they all get their moment to to proclaim, to proclaim something to the world. And as a viewer, it it did really resonate. How about you? Yeah, the, the hold your breath moment or the take your breath away moment is the opening, I don't know what, about five, eight minutes, something like that. The pre-title right. sequence where Snavi is introducing us to his neighborhood. And it reminded me a little bit of the opening, I think, of Baby Driver does some of that where it's actually using like someone's jangling their keys and that becomes right. part of the musical score. All the diegetic uh, sounds yeah, a hose is part of it. The spraying hose is used as well. And even there are some moments, and I don't recall this being done later in the film, but maybe Maybe it is where the editing, the cuts are literally on the musical beat. So that just brings you into that exuberant experience. I was holding my breath until that whole number ended. And then the title announces itself on the screen. And there's, to your point, there's applause in the theater. This was a sparsely attended um, previews critic screening, but there was still applause in the theater. People reacting, responding in the exact way you're describing. And I think this marks In the Heights as a a more is more Moulin Rouge variety of musical. Chu and his collaborators in terms of production design, um, choreography here. Christopher Scott is the choreographer. um, Animation effects. I mean, it is piling on and on and on. And for me, it was not too much um, in that opening sequence. I do think the movie, as it goes on, tries to top itself continually. And I think some sequences work better in trying to do that. And some get a little, you use the word overwhelmed. You could be overwhelmed by a movie like this in a good way where you're meant to, and in a negative way where it's just, it's too much. And sometimes the thread, the emotional thread of a scene or the dramatic core of what that scene is supposed to be about can get lost a little bit. And it it comes, it comes back to choose style. I think, you know, these production numbers, the larger ones, feature so many dancers, and they're they're all incorporating different styles of dance as well. Chu's mm-hmm. camera has to somewhat chaotically race around to try to incorporate all of them. I did really like – there are benefits to this, so I really liked how this allowed us to catch a lot of these average-looking extras, I would say, who look more like real people than you see in your yes. in your normal holiday Hollywood musical. Yeah, clearly – by design. Yeah, by yeah. design. They're doing their own little twirls kind of in the corners of the screen. And it, it reminded me of uh, a Jacques Demy musical, The Young Girls of Rochefort, which has so much delightful background activity going on in that town's streets as well. Um, and so that's a benefit to it. But sometimes in the film, I did feel like the movie got overwhelmed by itself or, or trying to keep up with um, the sequence at the pool, which has some great bits in it but then at other times you're like well where are we going here what you you know like why are we here at the pool that's kind of been lost because we're off trying to chase you know this presentation being done in this corner and now let's race over to another one it did feel at times to me that in the heights chu wasn't directing as much as he was hurting and trying to bring all these elements together now some people if you know 
if you can never get enough of it, that's going to be part of the exuberance. I think this will be a mileage may vary thing. Um, overall, I think it's to the movie's positive, but there were moments where I, I have felt that hurting instinct where we're trying to like rein things in, bring things together to make, again, for me, when it comes to musicals, you want each production number to have a cohesive, coherent, emotional or dramatic core that all the action is about. Um, and that's when musicals are at their best, I think. Phone call. Lotto office. We sold a winner yesterday. What's the payout? 96000 Dollars? Holla! Yo, I'll be a businessman richer than Nina's daddy. Tiger Woods and I on the links and he's my caddy. My money's making money. I'm going from pole to modo. Keep the bling. I want the brass ring like Proto! So I kind of chuckled a second ago when you mentioned the pool, because if you didn't mention it, I was going to ask you if that was one of the sequences that was proving your point, or maybe if it was one of the exceptions. Kind of does both, right? (laughs) Yeah. and, And for me, I would say it was an exception in that I think it's probably the standout sequence in the movie, maybe other than the open. You're definitely right. There is a more is more approach here that I think for the most part is a strength of the film. And we were talking a little bit about how it translates to the screen. And this happens inevitably, whether it's a musical or just a traditional stage play, you think about what did the director do? What did the filmmaker do with the material? How did they enhance it by bringing it to the big screen? And obviously no stage production takes place in the space that is Washington Heights, a space that is, wait for it, a character in the movie, right? Obviously it is. So there is an authenticity when you watch the movie and you see the characters in this space that they're singing about and that they're listening to and that they're romanticizing and also sometimes criticizing and dreaming of leaving or dreaming of of staying and trying to make it what they want it to be. Being physically in that space does have a certain power. And then you combine it with the scale. I think the pool sequence is one that really works because they're singing about the lottery ticket, the winning lottery ticket. And they're all wondering if maybe it was them. They're all dreaming about the possibility that they have the winning ticket. And we see their dreams kind of getting dashed one by one, but they're singing about what they would do with that money, what they could do with that money. And there are some of those moments, Josh, you're right, where there are so many dancers and there's so much choreography and it really, unlike any other sequence in the movie, feels like one kind of pulled out from an Astaire or Rogers film, mm-hmm. right? In yeah, terms of classical Hollywood with the, the kind of synchronized dancing in the water. And I think it's so appropriate to what they're singing about, almost this idea of the pool transforming from the local community pool to this grand this grand pool that you would encounter maybe if you were at only a super rich person's mansion, you know, or somewhere in Monaco or another exotic place like that. And when Sonny, one of the characters here who ends up playing a pretty pivotal role, who is Usnavi's right-hand man at the bodega, when he pushes that door open and it goes from dark to light and the camera is tracking slowly behind him as he is running towards the water and the widescreen there is really emphasizing the expanse of the pool and all the people. It also suggests to me, it's as if the whole neighborhood is really there. Mm -hmm. You know, if it was just a pool sequence, it was kind of low key. 
it for me wouldn't have the same impact. It's as if truly in that moment, they're all there. They all have different dreams. They all have different aspirations. A lot of them might even be at different stages in their lives. But in that moment, they're, they're all equal on a super hot day. What do you do? You go to the pool. Well, and that sequence does have a core that it sticks to. You said it. It's about the lottery ticket. The song is 96,000, you know, the dollar mm-hmm. amount. And so um, that that does bring some unity to what is, you know, maybe the biggest sequence in the film. Sonny, you mentioned, played by Gregory Diaz the fourth, totally could imagine that when Lin-Manuel Miranda was that age, he's maybe like, I don't know, 14 or 15. He looked and sounded and acted exactly like this kid. I I got some uh, Miranda vibes Mm -hmm. there. And speaking of Lin-Manuel Miranda, is this his best performance, Adam? I mean, you know, you talked at the start there about, and people have acknowledged performing is, you know, of all the many, many talents this guy has, we should spend some time on the music um, that he wrote for this. Uh, Maybe singing and and dancing isn't at the top of that list, Um, but still here, he finds such a comfortable spot as the Paraguay guy, the shaved ice peddler. He looks disheveled, older, a little thicker in the middle. And I love how he's embracing that. And mini scene he gets one brief number where this this guy sees his competitor on the streets right it's the soft serve ice cream truck kind of fits into this idea i think of gentrification and the changing neighborhood and it's almost like miranda cracks and goes a little crazy and he kind of like yeah. does, and he breaks into song and pulls a prank on the guy I just loved Miranda here. I mean, I, I think I did too. there's a comfort again, there's a comfortableness where his his voice, his talents and the character just mesh so beautifully. It might be the most I've enjoyed him as a performer on screen. Yeah, I think you make a very strong case and I had a very similar reaction. All the words you're using, his comfort, the way he embraced the role. And here's what I really love. You made the connection that I didn't back to the Sonny character, because now I can trace an even broader through line than I had and was going to present to you. And that is absolutely, I think at that age, I feel like Sonny's maybe about 14. That is probably exactly how Lin-Manuel Miranda remembers himself. And then, of course, he writes this musical, this very personal autobiographical musical in which he plays Usnavi. And now here he is in this cycle, right? And he is the Piragua guy. And that might be the type of transformation or evolution that some might not see as an evolution. You know, it's, I liked it better when I was Anthony Ramos. I was, I was Usnavi. I was the young buck, you know? And now you're the, you're the guy that everyone kind of makes fun of a little bit, who is out of shape and certainly doesn't wear cool clothes, but he does embrace it. And of course, the little Easter egg there, Josh, which I'm not sure if you're aware of, but of course, as I was sitting next to my daughter, Sophie, who has listened to In the Heights a hundred times since we all saw it together, she pointed out that there's a nice little Easter egg that is that the Mr. Softy guy is Christopher Jackson, who plays Washington, of course, in Hamilton, but also was Benny in the original In the Heights. So in that moment, Usnavi and Benny, the original Usnavi and Benny, together are embracing, though Lin-Manuel Miranda is certainly doing it more, they're embracing who they are now. And there is just such pleasure he seems to be having. So it's, it's metatextual, but 
not only did I find it really fun to watch, I actually found it kind of touching because I think this musical is very much about these characters who are striving for more, but also having to accept who they are and where they're from and the cycles of life that occur there, all the joy and all the pain that comes with it. And that he was once Usnavi and is now Piragua guy and that they've both been replaced, relegated by these incredible talents and Anthony Ramos and Corey Hawkins. Well, that's, that's just part of it too. That's, that's part of that cycle. That's the inevitability that as a performer, as a human being, you, you have to embrace it. And I'll go back to that word again that we both use. He, he absolutely embraces it here. Yeah. Because it goes back to what you're saying about him being a generous um, creator uh, and participant in the art form. Another, an audio Easter egg. How about the point where I think it's, yeah, you hear some Hamilton music on hold, the music hold or the phone hold music. I like that touch. Muzak version. Yeah. And it goes to, you know, to talk about Miranda's music a little bit, it's distinct from Hamilton in that he's he's combining not just hip hop and traditional Broadway, you know, belters. We get some real belting going on here. But of course, given this the cultural context, we have salsa, merengue, samba in the mix as well. And this is really, you know, um, it's not a melting pot musical because that's reductive. You know, there, there's more culture here than a than one pot could contain. It's just kind of spilling over the edges. Um, But that's really what the movie's primary interest is, I feel, is not so much whose story are we going to follow, who's going to be the main character, but how are we going to bring dignity to each person and each specific tradition they represent, depending on who their parents were, where they came from, the music from that place, the food from that place. There's a line who, given, uh, I think about, fairly early on by Abuela Claudio, kind of the neighborhood matriarch played by Olga Meredith. And she says, remembering what it was like when she immigrated to the U.S., we had to assert our dignity in small ways. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what In the Heights is is trying to do with each of these characters. Each time it brings in a new dance move, it, it's, you know, bringing dignity to that form of dance. Each time it shows uh, a different type of food. Uh, and I just now the movie, of course, because, again, going back to kind of choose direction and and the artistic choices here, it's asserting dignity in huge ways, <laughs> in big ways mm-hmm. on a big screen. But I think that's part of the exuberance, too. Um a filmmaking question I did have for you. What did you make of the magical realist choices that are made here and there? As I mentioned, there's special effects, animation effects. One of them is when um, Vanessa gets a number. Again, she's the aspiring fashion designer and these fabrics unfurl from the the roofs of the buildings. Uh, Did those touches work for you? I didn't mind the more subtle touches, but I have to say that for some reason, and we can try to unpack it here, Maybe the most blatant use of that magical realism really didn't work for me at all. And it's a dance number. Oh, a I wanted to talk about this Benny. one. Yeah, Benny and Nina, where they are essentially dancing on the outside of their building as if they are kind of like Spider-Man. It's a spider right? dance. And yeah. I think maybe the special effects had something to do with it. Maybe it was the fact that even though those touches were there in different ways throughout the film, it felt like I was entering a different, a different world yeah. and a different type of musical. It took them out of the milieu that I so enjoyed them being in. And the reality too, is I can watch those two performers just stand in their kitchenette 
and sing to each other. And it's more than thrilling enough. And it felt like that was one where maybe the filmmaker was trying to push it a little too far. Yeah, I, I did resist it as well. It's funny you say that about the special effects because there's nothing I can point my finger to, but it it did seem like they were out of out of space in a way that you're yeah, speaking it felt to. Artificial like, out in of a the way, nothing else. Yeah. Nothing else about the movie does. Right, right. So I think that's an element to it. Um I, I kind of came around as it went on. I mean, there's there's um a lot of acrobatics going on as they're kind of dancing over fire escapes that essentially have kind of been turned over that that is impressive and maybe i just eventually came around because it did remind me of a very similar sequence in la la land where emma stone and ryan gosling at the griffith observatory just unexplained there's this anti-gravity flourish during that sequence as well which also felt you know it's a step too far in a way, but has a similar audacity and, and romanticism to it um, that uh, that I do do think works in the end. But it, it's one I did resist when it first began. I'll give you that. Any closing thoughts, tidbits you didn't get to about In the Heights, Josh? I think we covered it. I'll be really curious to, to really dig into the reviews now that we've seen it, the ones I've been mm-hmm. avoiding. They've been so hugely enthusiastic. I almost feel like the little nitpicking that we did is going to is going to come back to haunt us but it's that sort of movie when a movie goes this big um and takes these sorts of swings you're going to have reasons to give effusive praise and then you're also going to have re- reasons to kind of say eh maybe maybe this was a, a swing and a miss but at the at the end of the day you want your movie musicals to make these attempts to take these swings and it's it's just it's a thrill to to get to see that in a theater again not to you know we're gonna have to put that on a shelf eventually and say okay we're done saying how good it is to be back in a theater this is maybe my third or fourth film back in a in a theater in a long time but it's true when the when the audience applauds when you hear the gasps when you hear even just like the people who have been holding their breath like I was release. Um, there's something thrilling about that. And when musicals swing big like this, they're going to have the opportunity to get those moments. Certainly, you couldn't begrudge Lin-Manuel Miranda if he wanted to play it safe with this, if John Chu, as a filmmaker, as a director, chose to play it safe. But you're right. They they went for it. And that doesn't mean that everything does land. But I'm with you that I would rather see the ambition of it. And I think you see it on display in In the Heights. In the Heights is currently playing in wide release. And for a limited time, you can watch it on HBO Max. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. So I don't know if you noticed, Adam, but the attendance in 1976's Car Wash, they share the same motto we have for this show experts at work Uh our review of the film the final installment in our seven from 76 series is next along with the results of our deeply divisive movie musicals poll stay with us We do not go anywhere near the surface. Got it? 
Everything good is above the surface. Walking, air, <gasps> the sky, clouds, the sun. Whoa, don't look at it. Just kidding. Definitely look at it. <laughs> That's from the trailer for Pixar's Luca, which comes exclusively to Disney Plus next weekend. The plot, Josh, on the Riviera, an unlikely friendship grows between a human being and a sea monster disguised as a human. I will now open the floor to you to make your case yet again for Film Spotting's top five mermaids on screen or mermaid movies. No, 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 no. Movie mermaids. Top five movie mer people, Adam. Ah. I mean, you know. Probably maybe not enough mermaids to choose from, but if you open it to mer people, which it sounds like Luca might might mer qualify, <laughs> yeah, you're you're never going to go for it. You know what? I'm gonna I'll put this in my back pocket for the next time Michael Phillips is on. I'm sure he'll yeah. be all in. I think he's going to be back this summer, maybe for a few shows, and you know that he will be down with that next week. No mermaids, no mer people, but hopefully. A review of Luca will also wrap up our seven from 76 best year ever series with our seven from 76 awards. I think we need a name. I can't remember if we had a name for our best year ever 1999 or 84 series. But if anyone has a good idea, you can email that to feedback at filmspotting.net. We will share our favorite performances, scenes and more taxi driver all the President's Men, Network, Rocky, among the titles we revisited for this series. And I love that I'm looking at our notes that our amazing producer, Sam Van Halgren, prepares for us. And what listeners are about to experience, little inside baseball here, is what happens when Sam posts things in our Slack that I ignore and don't respond to. He then, he then forces me to read it yes, and confront exactly. it live on the air. So, no, I can't dodge it. So we're going to have an on-air production it now. Producer Sam, because, you know, he just has to listen and make sure we sound smart and add some clips. He doesn't have to do the top five of 1976. He wants us to do that because mm -hmm. we did start long ago doing top fives for every year starting with the year before Film Spotting launched. So 2004, basically just the best films of each year. And, you know, we thought we would go back in time and we'd run out of years eventually. We have done every year going back to 1980. We have also had occasion to do the best films of 1967 and 1972. 1976 is not a year we've gotten to yet. And we've just spent half a year revisiting or finally catching up with some of the best and most notable films of that year. Sam is posing the question to us, should we just bite the bullet and do it now? As part of our awards, we share our top five films of that year. But I don't really think that's the question, because inevitably, Josh, every time we do one of these award series, looking back on one of these best movie years, we have to crown our best picture. And we have gotten in the habit of ranking all of the films from the series. Mm -hmm. I, I understand that maybe that doesn't right. necessarily overlap with your overall top five of that year, though it might for me. Spoiler alert. But it feels very similar to me. So I guess what I'm really asking is, are we devoting the entire segment to seven from 76 and all of these awards? Or are we really focusing on what are the top five films and everything else is just a little bit extra. Is that what Sam wants us to consider? 
And I, I believe so. But in film spotting tradition, which I think we all know, nothing is just a little bit extra. That's, <laughs> so I think, that's that, it. I think it's like, so if we're going to do our top five films of 76, it's going to be, it's going to be a big segment. To fair, in fairness to you, Adam, Sam is really pushing for this because you did respond with initial hesitance saying pretty much just what you offered is, listen, I'm looking at the top five films of 76. It's probably going to be comprised almost entire, mostly, if not entirely, from the films we just discussed. Yeah. So it might be a bit redundant. I haven't really sat down and um, I, I probably would have a little more variance than you, but certainly some of those titles are going to be on here. So I'm sympathetic to that. Um, and then we don't want to just kind of like rehash some of these movies that we've just been talking no. about this year. But, you know, Maybe there's a compromise here. Maybe there's a way to um, just list what our top five of the year would be quickly. And I, I'm saying as part of the awards in the manner that we've done before is like, okay, let's rank these that we've seen. And then see how that compares to, yeah, our top five overall. That com- that compares to this this list of five films we are only going to name and not discuss in detail. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll have to sign a contract to that to that effect, so that we don't. But I don't know. We'll see what Sam says after he wades his way through this back and forth. Yes, I do understand the impulse. Um, why not do it now? Uh, it makes complete sense. It's fresh in our minds. I think you and I are both terrified at the thought of of doing a legit top five of a year list and the awards, and then hopefully potentially Luca in the same show. That's absolutely the case, and we will see whether or not this is good enough for Sam. I'm not sure (laughs) it will be. I think maybe in his mind, and as he's thinking as a producer, he really wants to have a full-blown top five segment. But yeah, I might find myself just going, guess what? All the President's Men is the best movie of 1976, and you can listen to us talk about it on this show, because we really did just dive into it. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe... I'll do some digging, Josh, and I'll find some gem from 76 that we didn't talk about, and it'll weave its way in. So you can look forward to all of that. The suspense, I know, is just killing our (laughs) listeners now. They can't wait to find out not only what movies will be at the top of our list, but just what are we going to talk about in general? Indeed. You won't know until you tune in. Yes. One thing we can promise for next week's show, Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie, you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. No performances on this episode, but here's a bit of our last massacre in case you missed it. You're dead to me, boy. You're more dead to me than your dead mother. I just thank the Lord she didn't live to see her son as a mermaid. Merman. <laughs> See, Adam, right there. What you got you got a mer person. You're obsessed. Perfectly, You're perfectly obsessed. respectable mer person for your list. Only four more to go. Come on. <laughs> if you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, June 14th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and we'll announce them on next week's show. We love giving away free movie stuff to our listeners, and we've got some contest winners. And we've got another really exciting contest to announce. Last week, we were giving away some Blu-ray combo packs for The Mauritanian, which is available to own now on digital Blu-ray and DVD. It stars Academy Award winner Jodie Foster, Tahar Rahim, Shailene Woodley, and Academy Award nominee Benedict Cumberbatch. It's based on the New York Times bestseller, and the DVD release of the acclaimed film is filled with all-new exclusive bonus content, including an alternate opening, 
never-before-seen deleted scenes, and much more. We are giving away five Blu-ray copies at random. All you had to do is write it and tell us what is your favorite Benedict Cumberbatch performance. And Josh, our first winner is Jim. Jim wrote in with his pick. The 2014 movie, The Imitation Game, included, in my very humble opinion, Cumberbatch's best performance. I latched onto this because I'm a physics teacher who deals with some students who are part of the LGBTQ community. As an observer of the absurd judgments of society outside of the science classes I teach, and as a person who gets so wrapped up in his own obsessions of the projects I get involved in, I completely bought into his performance as a somewhat closeted gay man who believed in his research in developing the first computer, a breathtaking and immensely important project that helped win a war and brought the human race to a new level we will never go backwards from. What is not said, but could have been from a modern experience, is that this man was most likely autistic. I, too, am not a huge fan of The Batch, but this was a monumental role and moment in history, despite the ugliness that society displayed toward him. This next winner, Josh, has now won so many things from film spotting that he might have to be banned from competing Mm. in our competitions. He's already won three film spotting T-shirts as part of trivia spotting. Family member Andrew Howell in Lake Oswego, Oregon, says my favorite performance of The Batch is as Sherlock, but since that's TV, I'll go with The Imitation Game as my favorite movie performance. But don't sleep on his voice work in The Hobbit, one of the best things about those movies. Mm -hmm. Star Trek II or his Doctor Strange is a guilty pleasure when he's acting arrogant slash superior and his character often is superior. It's a good time. Another winner is Michelle Love from Vancouver, Washington. Benedict Cumberbatch's best work is Sherlock, but unfortunately this can't be counted for this question. Among his films, I would nominate three for the answer to this. One, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy. Two, The Imitation Game. And three, Atonement. The first two films are of vulnerable characters who cannot live the lives they want to. And yes, he is the creepy character Paul in Atonement. So different from most of the characters he has played. I was right. Warner West from Midwest City, Oklahoma, says my favorite Cumberbatch performance is actually in his new release, The Courier, where he plays a British businessman turned spy. It's a solid acting job with a pretty stellar acting finale, somewhat akin to Tom Hanks in Captain Phillips. Highly recommend. Thanks, guys. And now, Josh, just so you don't get tripped up on this, I'm going to warn you here. Our final winner of the Mauritanian Blu-ray has a little bit of fun with the Batches name and it kind of amuses me this is willie evans from kansas city director of the kansas city underground film festival my favorite benny cumberman performance is of course the grinch in 2018's the grinch of course again you can own the mauritanian now on digital blu-ray and dvd congrats to all five of our winners email feedback at filmspotting.net please include your address and we will get those blu-rays shipped out to you Another contest this week, and I think listeners need to listen closely. I think it will be of interest to many, if not all of them. Michael Phillips, if you're listening, you can just, you can turn the dial. You can hit pause if you want or hit stop on your iPhone. He's probably got like an old iPod Nano. Don't you think? You think that's how he listens to the show? I do. I think you're flattering yourself he listens to the show. Good point. We've got five Blu-ray combo packs to give away for the newly remastered Indiana Jones quadrilogy. Josh, tell us all about it. All right. This is the one from legendary filmmakers Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. 
one of the greatest movie franchises of all time in 4K Ultra HD. So they're collected together here, all four original Indiana Jones movies. They've been visually remastered with HDR10 and Dolby Vision and state-of-the-art Dolby Atmos for optimum picture and sound quality. All of this just in time. I know we've talked about whether or not we should do something for this, Adam, to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the adventure that started it all, Raiders of the Lost Ark. We are going to do something. We're going to live stream Michael Phillips watching the new Blu-ray of Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> Clockwork Orange style. I was just, I was picturing Can't look that. look away. Yes. <laughs> That's the only way it would work. Yeah. You can dive into the spectacular stunts and groundbreaking effects with seven hours of special features on one disc spanning the globe on death-defying archaeological endeavors. If adventure has a name, it must be indiana jones and you can own it now on 4k ultra hd and blu-ray from paramount pictures the movies are rated pg and pg 13 five lucky winners are going to get the blu-ray combo packs which include all four movies all you have to do is tell us how much of a heretic you are email feedback at filmspotting.net your subject line is raiders contest and in the body of the email rank all four indiana jones movies now josh Mm. you you've been known once or twice over the years here on the show to offer some heretical movie opinions Mm -hmm. and i think interesting some would call them interesting interesting and i think you might give us a somewhat interesting ranking of the four indiana jones movies and i think i am probably with you i'm going to join you I know we both really like Last Crusade. Like We love that Last Crusade. Yeah, I think it's underappreciated. So here's where I'd go. Tell me if this is where you're thinking. Okay. Raiders, I'm not, I mean, I'm not going to be that heretical. Raiders is Raiders at the top. Is one. It's a tough choice for me between Last Crusade and Crystal Skull. And I am proud to say, That's Adam, the stuff. That's the I'm stuff I'm proud to say, for, Josh. <laughs> I was on board with Crystal Skull from the start. It has been so refreshing to see people coming around in recent years from the it's a disaster to it's not bad camp now of course i'm further i'm in the next camp over i think it's really good now is it better than last crusade no probably not (laughs) probably not um so i'm not going to go that far so for me it is it's raiders last crusade crystal skull and temple of doom i'm sorry it's yeah it's it's one that Age is worse and worse. So I know there are listeners out there, and we may get some of these entries. We will get some of these entries who think that Last Crusade is number one, and they put it ahead of Raiders. We met some of those people virtually when they emailed us about our film spotting madness, best of the 1980s. Some said you, Last you Crusade know, was better than Raiders, which was a higher seed. Those people, those people are 90s kids born too soon. Yeah, that could be it. And I love love, love both films. So it's very close for me too. But yes, we're not going to surprise anyone probably by saying one is first and three is second. But then... Can you do I, it? I, Come I, with yeah, me. I, I Come can with absolutely me. go Crystal Skull ahead okay. of Temple of Doom. And that's more about how little I like Temple of Doom than how much I love <laughs> Crystal Skull. But I do like Crystal Skull and gave a very positive review to it on the show many years ago and yes i pointed out some aspects of the movie that i don't appreciate and i'll say that a lot of people listening right now kind of tearing their hair out not believing what we're saying you know 
the things you don't like about the movie, some of them are absolutely accurate. But there are other things that maybe you just don't appreciate quite enough. So I'm with oh, you. I, lo- I love this, Adam Kempinar. I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> four is number three. And to confuse you even further, two is number four. One, three, four, two. We're saying it definitively is the right order for the Indiana Jones quadrilogy. And I'm quite certain that we are not only going to get a lot of entries, but we are going to get a lot of hate mail for those rankings. All right. All four Indiana Jones movies are available now on 4K Ultra HD and Blu-ray from Paramount Pictures. Crystal Skull, Sacred Cow, I see it coming. (laughs) You know what? We might just live to do this show long enough, Josh, (laughs) where we have to resort to a sacred cow of Crystal Skull. Feedback at filmspotting.net, subject line, Raiders contest, and then just rank them. That's all you have to do. You don't even have to provide any commentary. Just rank them and send us the email. This week over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's part one of their Survivors Down Under pairing, the new The Dry with Eric Bana, paired with Peter Weir's Picnic at Hanging Rock. A very, very good one from early in his career. Your next picture show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday. Find them wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find more information at nextpictureshow.net. One way you can support Film Spotting is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. For a mere $5 a month, you get a host of benefits, including monthly bonus episodes. And it looks like. It's going to be not the movie I hoped was going to win our poll among family members, Josh. So I'll let you banter a little bit here while I look up the final results. But we decided to do, as part of our homework for 70s Madness next year, we decided to do a poll where we gave our listeners three choices, all blind spots for us again, all coming-of-age movies, a connection to Luca. Those choices were Fellini's Amarcord, Spirit of the Beehive, and Walkabout. And not only are they all three pretty revered films and three 70s films that are blind spots for us that are coming-of-age movies, but all three are Criterion Collection Edition movies. And I want to say Amarcord, which ironically I haven't seen it, but I'm staring at it on my shelf. It's actually my number one Criterion Collection edition because it was number four. The fourth movie Criterion put out was Fellini's Arm Record. And I think Walkabout, which I don't own, is nine or ten. So you really couldn't go wrong. But I was hoping the Fellini would win, Josh. Which one did you vote for? I That was my second choice, but I really want to see Walkabout. Um, just it's the You're one. You're part of the problem. Yeah, is that what's leading? Good, good. Yeah, it's it's the one that has um, just kind of popped up more often over the years. Uh, I also need to see more Nicholas Rogue, so yeah. that's to its benefit. And I'm checking as um, I'm talking here, Adam. I think all three of these are also available on Criterion Channel. So I believe that is true as well. So yes. if you're a subscriber there, you will be able to easily catch whichever one of these wins, or heck, just watch all three. Yeah. So this is how it came out. Walkabout. 41%, Amarcord, 36%, Spirit of the Beehive, 23%. And I'm joking that you're part of the problem. You're just more diligent and a better critic than I am. You're like, okay, I know it's probably going to be maybe a little bit more of a chore to watch, 
but it's the one I feel like I need to see more, so I'm voting for it. Meanwhile, I'm looking at the plot descriptions, and I'm reading Federico Fellini returned to the provincial landscape of his childhood with this carnivalesque reminiscence, recreating his hometown of Rimini in Cinecita's studios and rendering its daily life as a circus of social rituals, adolescent desires, male fantasies, and political subterfuge. Well, you know, I love adolescent desires and male fantasies on screen, but really, it's Fellini. It's a movie about movies. I'm thinking everyone's going to be in. This one's going to win with like 75%. It's certainly going to dominate the one that starts with this description. A young sister and brother are abandoned in the harsh Australian outback and must learn to cope in the natural world without their usual comforts. See, you had me at harsh Australian outback. Uh huh. I, I mean, I'm in. That's, that's where my vote went. <laughs> well, that's where 41% of our family members Votes went as well, so that will be the movie we discuss on an upcoming bonus episode, only available to Film Spotting family members. If you want to hear us reckon with that movie, you can sign up to be a member now. That also gives you access to the entire back catalog of bonus episodes. You also get the opportunity to participate in our monthly trivia spotting events we just completed this past weekend. This trivia spotting goes to 11, and we had a new champion. Nick Allen couldn't come back from RogerEbert.com to defend his crown. And we have a new winner. First time VIP critic Kristen Lopez from IndieWire and her team, the Bechdel Fail, they <laughs> did take it. And Josh, the competition was fierce. It mm. was a four-way tie. I think our first ever four-way tie at the end, but someone has to be a winner. There are no ties in baseball or in trivia spotting. There was a tiebreaker question, and there was a definitive winner, and it was not me. It was Kristen Lopez in the Bechdel fail. She was really impressive. It was in an earlier round, but how about when she pulled um, the name of the actor in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari? Oh, my I think goodness. it was. And it's, it's just like, yeah, she was rolling for quite a while there and came down yeah. to the wire. But Kristen took it. That was an amazing moment and unique in 11 episodes of Trivia Spotting. I can't think of another example where she didn't know it. She had a lifeline. She went to her team. The team could only think of Conrad Veidt. They knew it right. wasn't right, but it's the only name they could come up with. And I, of course, saw the cabinet of Dr. Caligari back in film school. I think maybe we even talked about it on Film Spotting at one point. Great classic film, but I, I really wouldn't have even pulled Conrad Veidt. And she throws two names together finally sort of in desperation. I feel like it was, and I haven't Googled it here, so maybe I'm even getting it wrong, but I feel like it was like Werner Krauss oh, or Werner Klaus. It was, I thought she was making them up. I really thought she was picking like the two most obvious German names ever yes. and just putting them together. And that's the right answer. And, and now I tried that method later in a round and tried to make up a German name for an answer. Right. <laughs> it didn't work for me. I guess, I guess I wasn't quite as close, but no. I got knocked out of the round with that. I suppose I do have to cop to the fact that this was my shot at glory. I've had two other second place finishes, but never been in the tiebreaker until now. We had an amazing team. Didn't miss a question the entire time. And we go to that final tiebreaker. And the question is, what year does Shakespeare in Love take place? And so, of course, you're thinking about the writing of Romeo and Juliet. You're thinking about Shakespeare's career. 
I had that little panic at first, Josh, where I was like, that was, that was probably the 16th century, right? I'm not, I'm not going to be way off here. The English major by like a hundred years. Am I? And I eventually settled on 1584 figured it was in the 1500s, but thought it was a little later. Went with 1584. It's not like the price is right. You can't go over. It's okay. If you go over, you just have to be closest to the year that is the correct answer. And how about my luck? I'm only nine years off. The correct answer is 1593. But Kristen Lopez like teaches a class on Tudor writing and and knew that it was exactly 1593. On the nose. You're not going to beat that. No, and I didn't. And I still have never won trivia spotting, which you will probably hold over me for the end of time because you have one victory. I do. I, I'm feeling I, I got to get one more under my belt ahead of you before I feel really yeah. comfortable, though. Fellow IndieWire editor Steve Green joined Kristen. Seattle Screen Scene's Sean Gilman, who helped us with our Contemporary Chinese Cinema Marathon, was a guest captain. Brian Tallarico from RogerEber.com came back. Pop Culture Happy Hour contributor Chris Klemek was back on the show. And our three-time champ, Mariah Gates, was on as well. She is always so much fun. She is now lost two times in a row. She is fallible, but she is delightful. And we'll have some of those captains back and some brand new ones. Kristen is coming back to defend her title, Josh, next nice. time. It's going to be in July. Next time, it'll be July 9th. It's a Friday night, 7 or 8 p.m. start Central Time. We haven't designated it yet. Are we going to call this Todd's 12 in honor of Thomas Todd, our quiz master? Oh, okay. We could do that. Yeah. Thomas does a great job. I mean, just Incredible. shepherding this this whole event. So I think he deserves that at this point. There you go. We've been Todd's doing these 12. for what? Almost a year now? That will be our 12th episode. We so, won't exactly get to celebrate the one year anniversary because we started in August. But yeah, 12 months of these virtual events with listeners from all around the world joining us. People from Australia, from yep. Tel Aviv from Saudi Arabia, even joining us. And yes, there's some people in Chicago and New York and San Francisco and some towns in America, Josh, that aren't as big as those. We love doing them and quarantine or not. I think they're here to stay because they are so much fun and we will announce when tickets go on sale soon. Patreon.com slash film spotting is where you go to sign up and get all of your extra content. Shorty, get down, good lord. Woo! Baby, got them open all over town. Strictly, bitch, you don't play around. Cover much ground, got game by the pound. Getting paid is a forte. Each and every day, to play away. I can't get her out of my mind. Oh, wow. Okay. Speaking of trivia spotting, one of my teammates last time. I'm not going to name him here just in case he doesn't want me announcing this to the world. I don't know why he wouldn't, but maybe he doesn't. He formerly had a roommate in L.A. who was a troublemaker. He was in the movie Pitch Perfect. He was one of the troublemakers, Josh. I got so starstruck just being that close yeah. to someone who used to live with a troublemaker. Big, big moment. 
big moment. It really for you, was. <laughs> and I, I haven't actually found out which one it is yet. I don't know if it was my favorite or not. 2012's Pitch Perfect was one of the very questionable options we gave you a couple weeks ago in the very questionable film spotting poll. That question was, what is the best live action movie musical of the 21st century? The options we gave you in the order they appear on the musical spectrum from probably not a musical to definitely a musical are these. Yeah, I'm glad we I'm glad we have these categorized now. At least we've we, it's this has led us somewhere, Adam, this whole process. So probably not musicals, A Star is Born and Pitch Perfect. Maybe sort of a musical. We're going to put John Carney's Sing Street in that category. A non-traditional musical. How about Once? Also from John Carney. And then here are the options that are definitely musicals. Hedwig and the Angry Inch, Chicago, La La Land, Moulin Rouge. And we did offer the option of other. And here is how it came out. In last place, I've, I've never felt so abandoned and forsaken by film spotting listeners. Pitch perfect. Oh, man. 1%. That, that popped your pitch perfect high, I bet. You were it on. doesn't even beat A Star is Born. That could never happen, Josh. A Star is Born is 4%. Third from the bottom. Other with 5%. Some of those write-in votes include the very good Dancer in the Dark, Tim Burton's Sweeney Todd, Julie Taymor's Across the Universe, and The Greatest Showman. Chicago, next with 8%. We then had a tie, 11%. Sing Street and Hedwig and the Angry Inch. And then a little bit of breathing room here. And I think you you probably feel pretty good about this top three, Josh. Moulin Rouge, 18% in third. The runner-up is Once. My beloved once by John Carney, 19%. And the winner is Moonlight. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. No, it's, <laughs> it's La La Land. It's La La Land, 23%. Hey, good for once. Uh, breaking out of the non-traditional musical category to get up there with the with the legit options here. But yeah, this makes me makes me very happy. Let's see what listeners had to say in the comments. Here's Aaron Teachman. I love spicy genre-busting polls like this, especially on a multi-dimensional axis like the problem of the movie musical. I'm very generous with what I consider a musical, but what I love about movie musicals are things that can only happen on screen and not on stage. So to me, that narrows it down to Moulin Rouge or Once. Moulin Rouge offers a ton more spectacle, and the scale and sweep of it are a fun part of the ride. But if we are nitpicking, and it's a poll, so we have to nitpick, the songs are not originals. And while Lerman uses those songs very well, it dings Moulin Rouge just enough for once to pip it. Is that a, is that a Michael Phillips term, I think? That is definitely it. a Phillipsism. Once is almost the polar opposite on the scale in terms of spectacle, but that's what makes it such a marvelous movie musical. It's an intimate indie drama with original songs that is also about making the songs. So it captures the spirit of music making and movies just perfectly. Okay. Aaron has given this a lot of thought. Are you buying any of that argument? Putting Moulin Rouge behind once, Josh? Uh, no, no. I mean, <laughs> it comes back to where we categorized them, I think. I do think of I don't know how I would say it. I like the spectrum idea. I forget. It might have been Sean Gilman mm -hmm. who came up with that. So I'm not like putting once out of the running, but I think Moulin Rouge is much further along the spectrum towards movie musical for me. So it would well, get my vote. Paige is with you. Moulin Rouge is the best movie of all time, not just the best movie musical. So this was a very easy poll for Paige. Kathy Reinking says it was so hard. She adores musicals. Once in Sing Street are so dear to me, but I felt compelled to choose Hedwig 
because one, it's probably the only adaptation of a theatrical musical into a movie musical with the original cast intact, at least the leads, and two, it lost nothing in the translation. We also heard from Jeff Heimbrock. I'm so sorry, but Chicago is truly a flawless adaptation of great source material, one of the greatest movie musicals ever. Even with other incredible choices like Hedwig and Moulin Rouge, there's just one clear winner here in my eyes. Sam dropped in a note for us here. Jeff apparently appeared in the Broadway productions of Wicked and Book of Mormon. So I guess he should get like one and a half votes, yeah, maybe? Is yeah. that how that I works? I follow Jeff. I follow Jeff on Twitter. I know all about his musical exploits. And yes, we should listen to Jeff. And Chicago probably is a little bit, maybe a lot underrated, thinking about how derisively most people seem to regard it. Yeah, I like Chicago a lot. I, I do. I think you're right. I think it is kind of put in that batch of you know, Oscar nominees slash winners to scoff at, but I think it's a really strong film. Betsy says, I have read the comments. I have voted in the poll for Sing Street, whose Drive It Like You Stole It has been stuck in my head all week for no good reason. I strongly considered casting a vote for Hedwig or other for Team America World Police or Love the that. campy and underappreciated Josie and the Pussycats from 01. But really, the only question here is, who are these soulless monsters voting for La La Land? Wow. Oh, is, is this, I, I, I see, here's where we got to get into the La La Land slamming. We do. From our and own PA. From it's Kat. coming from inside the house. Cat <laughs> Sullivan. Are the people voting for La La Land okay? A movie I really, really like, but best movie musical of the 21st century, it is not. Have you seen actual singers and dancers before? Ooh, burn. <sighs> James from Belleville, Illinois, says lots of good choices here, but I'm one of the silent majority cringe who voted for La La Land. I just recently rewatched it for the first time since 2016, and that confirmed that it's one of my favorite movies of its decade. It's an ultimate comfort watch that also works really well as a moving, tragic romance. The singing and dancing might not be the best on the list, cat, but I love the musical numbers all the same. Yeah, take that cat. Here's Emma Crotty from Denton, <laughs> Texas. I think this is a milestone for me because after about two years of listening to the show, this is the first time I have ever been genuinely mad over a film spotting poll. It took you that long, Emma. Well done. <laughs> well done, Sam. As one of the zillennials who grew up watching the film adaptations of Hairspray and Mamma Mia repeatedly, I'm upset that they aren't even mentioned here. I'll admit that they may not be as critically acclaimed as some of the other films, but they're undeniably musicals, cough, cough, and immensely entertaining despite their flaws. That being said, I'm writing in a vote for Hairspray. I can't think of another movie that makes me want to get up and dance like that one does even after multiple viewings. Well, Emma needs to provide a little bit more context and information here because does she mean divine or does she mean John Travolta? And I hope the answer is divine. You know, I'm going to defend... I really like both of versions. Of course you are. I, I really like Travolta is maybe not the strong part of that 2007 version, but the movie, the movie overall is pretty great. Hmm. I don't remember thinking it was pretty great, but I also would have to look up what my really important star rating was for that version of Hairspray. John in Orlando says, as much as I love La La Land and Once and Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, my answer was never in doubt. Tim Burton's Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street. Burton, having spent a couple decades finding light in the dark and intermingling comedy and pathos, ends up being a perfect match for Sondheim's blackly comic Grand Guggenhall tragedy. Johnny Depp and especially Helena Bonham Carter have been criticized for not having adequate singing voices, but to me, they bring the right soul and scale to this version. 
Here's Bill Shipley from right here in Chicago. Thank you for bringing attention to this underappreciated genre. But please, please don't do Across the Universe the disservice of being excluded from this list. It constantly surprises and delights in ways that none of these other films do. And that is why I think Across the Universe is, hands down, the best live-action musical of the 21st century. Oh, man. Bill apparently hasn't listened to the show going back to whatever year that played at the Toronto Film Festival, maybe 09, I'm going to guess, when it was the final movie I watched at the festival. I think maybe number 23 or something in four or five days. And man, did I hate Julie Taymor's Across the Universe. Were you awake? Were you, st- I, were you still managing I, I to stay was, awake? I was coherent. Okay. And maybe it wasn't the best state, and maybe I'm actually not the right audience for it because I'm too much of a Beatles snob to appreciate what Tamor and company are doing are doing with the material. Josh, we'll leave it at that. But I was not a fan of Across the Universe. Have you seen it? I have not seen that, no. So I can't, I, that wasn't a judgmental question. I, I was just legitimately curious. Okay, well, we will close with this one from Maddie Rosen, who says, my vote goes to Bo Burnham's new stand-up special, Inside. A cinematic experiment that blurs the lines between irony and sincerity, documentary and narrative, comedy and psychological horror. The songs are catchy, hilarious, and heartbreaking. And what Burnham was able to do with a camera, some LED lights, a projector, and four walls blew me away. It immediately jumps to the top of this poll and my best films of 2021 list, at least until Spielberg's West Side Story comes out this winter. Then we'll see. Yeah, I am not ready to unpack what Bo Burnham's inside is. I think I think that could launch a thousand Slack conversations on its own, Josh, about how to classify that special. I will say, I think it's pretty fantastic. Well, that, that's what I was going to say. Is Maddie trying to introduce even more chaos here by not only wrestling with the what is a musical question, but but what is a TV streaming offering, comedy special, movie Right. I mean, we're, we have enough problems on our hands, Maddie. Thanks. We do indeed. Thank you to everyone who voted in the poll and who left comments. That means it's time for a new deeply flawed poll. In a couple of weeks, we'll be back in the driver's seat, so to speak, with Dom, with Letty, oh, with yeah. Roman, with Mia, and the rest of the Fast and Furious family. I'm going to say Sam really missed an opportunity here. He literally could have thrown in any name. He could have put George. Oh, come on. He could have said Pete. He could have said Pierre, and I would have just read them. Because no. you know, I don't you know, know Dom, you know, Letty. Yeah. Who's, who's Paul, who's, who's Paul Walker's, um, unfortunately no longer with us character. Come oh, on, give I'll, it to me. I'll pull it because it's like the blandest. <laughs> You're on the right track. Name ever. It's Brian. Oh, oh, I just alienated every Brian who's listening. <laughs> See? Sam cut that. Sam these, cut that from the show. These characters are close to your heart, Adam. Don't pretend. <laughs> F9 comes to theaters on June 25th. F9, as the title does make clear, is the eighth sequel in the Fast and Furious franchise, which started way back in 2001 with the Fast and the Furious. So our question, and I actually, whether it has flaws or not, and some listeners and commenters may think it it does, I think this is one of Sam's better questions. This is Very a really inventive. good one. Yeah, quite creative. What ensemble car movie, so far without a sequel, should reunite the original cast for a sequel. Now, here's an important caveat. Some members of the original cast did not survive the original film. So if I'm reading that right, is Sam allowing for the fact that F9 style, 
someone can come back from the dead and we're okay with that or the opposite? I'm reading that as the opposite. And as you're, I've, I've concerned this poll already, but as we're going through it now, is he referring to both characters and real life actors? Ooh, I, I guess it doesn't matter. It, I think I mean, that's what he means. He's more giving the Paul Walker okay. type scenario because we look at our very first option here and, you know, some of these characters died. Spoiler alert. Why don't yeah. we go ahead and get into those options? Josh. That's the case with Nicholas Winding Refn's Drive. That one features Ryan Gosling and Carey Mulligan. We'll just leave it at that. Our other option is Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. The cast there, of course, Will Ferrell, John C. Riley, Sasha Baron Cohen, Leslie Bibb, Amy Adams, and now, Adam, I'm going to leave the rest of the show to you and go watch Talladega Nights. No, I'll, I'll press on. Edgar Wright's Baby Driver is another option with Ansel Elgort and Lily James. Sam's caveat might apply here, too. How about the Wachowski sisters' Speed Racer? That one has Emile Hirsch, Christina Ricci, John Goodman, Susan Sarandon. Tarantino's Death Proof is another option. Zoe Bell, Rosario Dawson, and Mary Elizabeth Winstead in that one, among others. And then two more choices here. Gone in 60 Seconds, way back to 2000. That's when this one came out. Really an unbelievable cast, looking back on it. Nicolas Cage, Angelina Jolie, Robert Duvall, and Delroy Lindo. And then we have an even older film here from 1990, Tony Scott's Days of Thunder. Look at this cast. Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, Robert Duvall, John C. Riley, Michael Rooker, Carrie Elwes, Randy Quaid, and, oh, we love her, Adam, Margot Martindale. Yeah. I mean, so here's where Sam's, the construction really becomes crucial. Do you mm -hmm. want to see that whole cast, all those names we just listed, in a sequel made today? A, a sequel to Days of Thunder made today. So as Sam pointed out, don't just go, when he was pitching this, don't just go with your favorite film. You right. got to look at at the people in the cast. So I would go favorite film would be Talladega nights. And I would, you know, want to see that. I would want to see a sequel to that. But man, if you look at the cast, I might actually have to go with gone in 60 seconds. I mean, really getting Jolie and cage together right now. <laughs> what would happen? One of them. I don't think one of them would come out alive. Is it my sounds like a car crash is what it sounds like. <laughs> if that's what you want to watch, Josh, can I ask a dumb question? I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it. Okay. They definitely haven't made a sequel. We got Anchorman. We've had we've had other maybe Will Ferrell sequels, but there wasn't one to Talladega Nights. I mean, if there was, I missed Sam it. I'm deeply, deeply distressed. Well, how hard is it to choose against Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby? Of course, I want to watch another Talladega Nights movie. I want to see that cast reunited, but. I also love Days of Thunder. I mean, I don't love Days of Thunder, but it's it's an 80s relic, and it's pretty fun, and it's basically Top Gun in cars, of course, and I like Top Gun. You probably should rewatch it. You'll discover that Carrie Elwes is really the hero of the movie. Josh, well, I was going to ask. The, not the villain. I mean, rewatch, Adam. I, I've never seen Wait. Days of Thunder. Oh, my, Josh. Yeah, I know you had you had so much more refined taste than I did back in 1990. I mean, is it another locker room movie, Adam? Is that what you're is that what you're trying to sell me on there, here? There are some locker room moments. OK, absolutely. There are. <laughs> is anyone and named Iceman? No, but he's basically Iceman. He's like the blonde villain driver who he competes mm. with. OK, and of, cor of course, gets in some kind of wreck with, I think. Actually, 
might be a different character. Nevertheless, it's been a long time <laughs> since I've seen Days of Thunder. I Adam's, Adam's half-remembered plot plot points. <laughs> that brings us back to the two best movies on okay. this list are, are Drive and Death Proof, both mm. making my top tens of their respective years. And I'm going to go totally snobby art house Adam and say prequel to drive bring back Gosling bring back Mulligan that's the movie I want to see that's my pick I I don't know if that's allowed according to the rules but mostly it violates because oh, it's it's not a sequel It'd right be a prequel but, yeah, yeah, but in I'm, movie terms it's a sequel I'm more it's concerned the second that it, movie I'm just really concerned you declared anything other than Talladega Nights the best movie of these options <laughs> Come on, Adam. I am just like the Academy, and I ignore comedy, Mm -hmm. and that's one of my many flaws. In early voting, Ryan Gosling is looking to capture his second consecutive poll. Drive is currently way out ahead. It's about to lap the competition. Talladega Nights and Baby Driver are battling for second. Titles getting other votes include Mad Max Fury Road, which Sam did consider, but says, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, it's already a sequel. Ronan with De Niro, Jean Reno, Sean Bean, and Stellan Skarsgård. And then I do love this entry, and I wish we had the person's name who suggested it. The one sequel they most want to see is Ford v. Ferrari, Dawn of Justice. You see <laughs> okay. what they did there? Yeah, you see now, what they did there, Josh? Now I'm interested. When it was just a Ford v. Yeah. Ferrari, I mean, right. uh, uh, okay, if we have but to. But Dawn, Dawn of, of Justice. Justice. Yeah, now we've got something. You can vote in that poll and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. They still do it by hand at Mr. B's. Morning, Mr. B's. Morning, Snapper. Only determination. Got the big three. Dedication. And a tough crew of men can get the job done. Stand and deliver, honey. They've got a sharp boss who always has control of the situation. They've got teamwork. Most of all, they get the will to work. I don't want you to leave here without realizing what I can do for your car. Like what? Take over the payments for me? <laughs> this is the wet and wild world of the car wash, a business a man can be proud of. I want to work with the men, Dad. Where the only rule is, do it with style. That's from the trailer for 1976's Car Wash directed by Michael Schultz. It's the seventh and final film in our 7 from 76 Best Year Ever series. And as we hope, Josh, in fact, maybe more than we'd hoped, it makes a great pairing within the Heights. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more as we get into our conversation. I mean, where where would this land on the movie musical spectrum? That the poll question, it's right. It's yeah, maybe not as fodder for discussion. Yeah, not as much a one as as in the Heights, but it's it's definitely on there. It's also an episodic ensemble comedy. It takes place over a single day at LA's Deluxe Car Wash. So stick with me here as we run through some of these many, many characters. You've got the owner, Mr. B, played by Sully Boyer, his son Irwin played by Richard Brestoff, a dim-witted leftist college student who sports a Mao t-shirt and wants to work on the line with the other attendants. Those employees, it's important to note, they wash cars by hand, Adam, inside and out. Among them is Franklin Ajay's TC. He spends the movie trying to win a radio contest, calling in via the nearby payphone. He also tries to get a date with a waitress who works across the street. 
Bill Duke, a young Bill Duke, appears as recent Muslim convert Abdullah. Antonio Vargas plays an outspoken trans woman named Lindy. There's an ex-con, Lonnie, played by Ivan Dixon. Garrett Morris shows up as a con man and a bookie. And then there are the car wash customers, various passers-by. Among the cameos we get here, Richard Pryor playing a money-obsessed evangelist, Daddy Rich, his entourage, the Wilson sisters, they're played by the Pointer sisters. And then George Carlin pops up repeatedly as a taxi driver who's on the lookout for a customer who skipped out on paying her fare. That's a prostitute named Marlene, played by Lauren Jones. You can spend a lot of time listing the characters. I don't know that you can spend a lot of time diagramming the plot. It doesn't really have much of one. It is a single day in the life of this car wash and these characters. It was originally conceived as a musical, and it does feature nearly wall-to-wall music, including the hit title song. Most critics were kind to car wash. Ebert wrote at the time that it's one thing to have an idea like this and another thing to make it work, but the screenplay and the direction juggle the characters so adroitly, this is almost a wash and wax mash. Now, Josh, you can't compare it to mash. I know you haven't seen that Altman classic, but I want to get your take and I want to see if you agree with Ebert because I think there's a sense as you're watching Car Wash, even if you know a little bit about it going in and you see that opening and you see them dancing to that song, you see the introductions to all of these characters and you you start to settle in and realize this movie really probably is just going to follow these characters, these workers on this day and not give me much else. And is that is that going to be enough? Was it enough for you? Well, yeah, because it gives you something entirely different than a traditional narrative or a character study even of one or two people. It gives you something even more unique. And that is this perfect encapsulation of the rhythms of a working class workday. I think it's incredibly important that we open before the car wash does, and we're jumping among the various attendants as they're arriving at work. One of the earlier, earliest scenes is them in the locker room, changing into their orange jumpsuits. And we're already getting the feel, not only of the interpersonal dynamics, but that this is the start to their day. It's the routine. They're all going through these motions. Um, and then the movie, it just rolls along with them through this single day. It, the rush of customers, the lulls we get when a lot of the you know, the hijinks take place. Lunch, I mean, we sit with them at yeah. lunch. And then I love how it concludes. The last manager to turn out the light. It, it really captures what it means to be on the clock and is specific about, you know, when you're on the clock, cents are measured, like the, the money, it's measured in minutes, right? Your time is not your own. Yet what's so joyous about car wash is that freedom and individuality are still going to poke their heads out. They're going to, they're going to bust out of the commerce whenever they can and get reined back in, you know, here and there, there is that structure. The day has its rhythm. Um, but I just really appreciated this, you know, anyone who's had kind of like the, the punch in punch out job, you're going to recognize these rhythms. Right. And I think the movie just captures that. And, and I want to, you know, go back to the music and not not just kind of like mention that there's a lot of music in here, but talk really within the context of our last seven from 76 film, Harlan County, USA. Yeah. And we, we spent so much time on how crucial the music was to that film. I'd argue the music here is just as crucial in, in what it's what it's how it's trying to assist what this movie wants to do. And again, it goes back to that rhythm of the workday. This this nine to five is narrated 
in a conceit Spike Lee would borrow for Do the Right Thing. It's narrated by the local radio station and the the DJs across the day, the different DJs we hear. This music is being blasted over the the speakers at the car wash. Uh, I love the bit where Boyer, the the owner, tries to change the station and there's almost a revolt, yeah. a mutiny, right? Yeah. Which he knew would happen, yeah. He knew what would happen. And, and um, you know, all of these songs, not all of them, I think almost all of them are written by Norman Whitfield. They're performed by the R&B group Rose Royce. And um, they each have their distinctive meaning, especially for the moments when we hear them. But they're part of the texture, just as they were in Harlan County. They're part of the texture of the characters' lives, too. Obviously, fictional lives here, and and those were real lives. But it's still building that same texture. And uh, maybe two of my favorite moments in the movie, Adam, and this goes back to Is This a Musical?, involve characters lip-syncing to a song that's being played on the radio. We have the one where uh, TC is, quote-unquote, serenading Reed's waitress with, I want to get next to you at the diner. He goes, play that's playing, and he just starts mm-hmm. kind of mouthing it to her. Lovely moment. And then Lauren Jones, who plays um, the prostitute who's been stranded at the car wash, she sings I'm Going Down or lip-syncs to it while making this fruitless and, and very sad call in the phone booth. So so you've got that plus the fun songs, the the Pointer Sisters, you got to believe is a great number. Um and it's it's just like one step away from becoming a full-on movie musical. And and that's one of the things that surprised me about it. Obviously I knew the title song, figured that would be in it, but didn't really understand how thoroughly music was going to be part of the lifeblood of this film. I love your point about the introduction and the way this movie opens because seeing them as people before the workday starts just establishes that that they are people <laughs> that once they they put on that jumpsuit they are going to only be regarded a certain way by their employer and by the people who encounter them but of course they are people and they are individuals before they step into that jumpsuit and i think that also ties it back as you did to harlan county usa i agree i also had it on my mind watching it a little bit where you're thinking about the exploitation of the laborers and some of them having demands for a better working condition, even if they're not on the same level or to the same degree that we see with the coal miners in Harlan County, USA. And yet they keep running up against those roadblocks. And then I'll take it back to in the Heights here. And maybe we can talk about the, the similarities. It just did work out so wonderfully here that we're talking about both movies on this show. You mentioned the line from Abuela in in the Heights, which is about how they find ways to assert their dignity, to really assert their kind of individuality. And that is what we see with all of these characters, ways for them to just kind of subtly thumb their nose at the power structure and kind of just reinforce to them that, you know what, they're they're not dead yet. <laughs> they they are still they are still here and they are individuals who matter. It is one location, obviously even more hyper local than in the Heights and that it's not just one neighborhood. It really does all take place at the car wash. The way we're introduced to all of the characters, as we've touched on, similar to the opening of in the Heights, they're all kind of a makeshift family, which means they have their, their highs and they have their lows. They all like the characters and in the Heights have their aspirations. They all dream of getting out. Even if it's for TC, it's like he kind of sees himself as a superhero. He wants to write a comic, but he also takes on the persona of the fly. But they all they all have that. They're all seeking that that answer and having those aspirations and the dreams of getting out of the car wash that 
carries with it its own accompanying challenges and struggles. It is, as we said, almost a musical, not quite, and that we don't see many numbers where people are actually singing on screen, but there are a few, and it certainly is wall-to-wall music, and there is also the element of these characters. I mentioned kind of the the class system here at work and the, the labor versus management dispute, but just in general, the economic realities of the lives of these workers is something that the movie very much is concerned with. It's this idea that progress is sort of happening. It's taking over. This car wash is a relic and it's going to be replaced at some point. And if it's replaced, what's going to happen to these men? What's going to happen to these workers? They're then archaic and outdated too. They're hanging on just barely. So when you start this film, maybe just like if you had started Cooley High back in the day, or when we watched it as part of our Black Exploitation Marathon, another Michael Schultz film, you watch it thinking, okay, this feels familiar. Car Wash is kind of like a musical, this eclectic ensemble. It's clearly a comedy. I'm in for a good time. Just like you think you're in for a good time watching a movie that is also a comedy and is essentially the the black answer to American graffiti. You don't realize that you're going to necessarily be hit with a movie that really has some poignancy to it and has a message. But Michael Schultz, in both cases, definitely has a message to deliver. And we get that cultural satire here. We get the sociopolitical elements and we get some of those sad moments. I think you use the word sad, Josh, and I really felt it here in a movie that is otherwise so kind of outlandish and absurd and silly. You get some of these moments like the sadness that comes with Marsha's character, the woman who works the register. And it's just crazy to consider that she's sleeping with the boss, right? This much older, way out of shape guy who really doesn't feel like he'd be much of a catch. So why is she sleeping with him? Well, because it might keep her in a job or help to keep her in a job. It might get her special treatment at work. Maybe not. She might get some tangible things out of it. She might get some gifts. She probably gets some dinner here and there, maybe a nice dinner occasionally. But really, isn't it just that she doesn't have a lot of other options and it's better than being alone? And of course, she's waiting for her prince to come. Any moment when another guy walks in who seems like he might be an upgrade, she's ready to trade up. And I'll give you another moment too that I love. And it's that that reaction the character Hippo has when he's just traded his radio, which you can't separate from him. And he gives it up. He walks out the door. He's traded it for a sexual favor with the prostitute character. And there's something about it that as funny as it kind of is, it also just reinforces this idea that there's a price for everything, right? You you want that satisfaction in the moment? Great, but it's fleeting. It's going to be followed by the regret. And there's there's a lot of regret at the core of this movie. I'm glad you mentioned Marsha because I think that's one of the performances she's played by Melanie Mayrun that really does capture both sides of this, the broad mm-hmm. comedy and then and then the sadness that does seep in. And I I want to point people to another 70s film she stars in, actually Mayrun does, 1978's Girlfriends. This is one I just caught up with, I think, a couple of years ago, but uh, directed by Claudia Weil and much more of a drama. She plays... Um, basically an aspiring photographer in New York, um, lives with her best friend. And it's it's almost like a counterpart to a movie, Adam, we saw in our Varda, Agnes Varda, 
uh, marathon. One sings, the other doesn't. Kind of this intimate portrait of what it's like to be a woman who's pushing back against convention in the late 1970s. So if you like Marin here, check her out in Girlfriends as well. A different type of type of performance, but you can see that there, the dramatic, dramatic roots or seeds are right here in Car Wash mm-hmm. as well. So I think she is quite good. I want to go back to your comment about you know, Michael Schultz here and juggling these tones, both in the, the Cooley High and this, I think that, you know, over the course of two films we've seen of his might be his, his real skill. And that's not to say that Car Wash doesn't, you know, you might f- find some of these hijinks just like, yeah. you know, way over the top, or they're not going to ring with you. And you might say the tone isn't that well managed here. But I think, as you said, when you take into account all of the things it's trying to do, what he does, the cohesiveness he does manage to bring is a real skill. And I think a real strength of this movie. There there are some filmmaking touches. I love the shot of the, the young skateboarder when he rides by the line of cheering mm-hmm. attendants. It's like a rolling single take following him yep. as they kind of cheer him on. That's kind of a showy shot. But really, Schultz, I think, just brings this tone management. And it goes back to what you said at the top of the show, Adam, the remarking that Joel Schumacher, director of St. Elmo's Fire, director of Batman and Robin has an early screenwriting credit here, the only screenwriting credit. And so, you know, you've got to think about the various voices at work here. You've got Schultz, a black director, uh, Schumacher, a white filmmaker, white screenwriter at this point. I'm imagining, especially with Richard Pryor, there had to be a lot of improv going on in these scenes, you think, right? So then so then, what you've got here is you could criticize Car Wash's saying, oh, I see a lot of white liberal imagination, what someone might think these sort of characters would act like and hold that against it. I'm sure that's an element. But then you've got the improv where some of these performers of color are bringing their own truth to these moments and and taking the script maybe where they want it. And then you have Schultz bringing his own perspective. Mm-hmm. So it really is, it's a movie that has, um, I don't know, a lot of elements that could be more at odds with them with each other than they are, I guess. it, it It's very self-aware about the tensions within it. And it find it manages to find comedy uh, there as well. And I think that, you know, you're right to mention that there are serious conversations about pay here and mm-hmm. and not being paid enough. And I actually didn't make that connection to Harlan County, and it's right there. That's a total connection. And also near the end, there's a remarkable scene between Lonnie, Ivan Dixon here, the parolee, and Abdullah. Abdullah has come come back at night. It's just the two of them. And Abdullah tells him, he kind of breaks down and says, it's all falling apart. Right. And and he says, he's basically talking about the socioeconomic corner he feels like he's he's put in. But he also references the car wash itself. I, I thought it was really interesting that he says he can't watch this clown show anymore. I don't know, man. I don't know. I know I'm not crazy. But every day I have to come here and watch this clown show, man, sometimes. Just can't take it. I know. And what I think is self-aware about that is that it's like Car Wash knows, the movie knows it is a clown show. It, it acts like a clown show, but it's it's just so much smarter 
than you might think about being one, I guess, I guess is the way mm-hmm. it's, it's not that it's undermining being a clown show. It works, right. it operates on that register, but it's, it knows that and it's smart about the way it wants to go about being that at the same yeah. time. No, I agree. I think that is Schultz's skill. That's the trick here of this movie, a movie that is at times so vulgar in some ways. It's absurd, as I mentioned. There's a lot of ridiculousness to it. I'm not sure that every gag lands like the one with the bomber and the bottle of pee. You know, that's one that probably could have been left out of the movie. But to overstate it a little bit, I'll go ahead and say it. There is something fundamentally human about this film at the core of this movie. It's all of these people just sort of every day, like Sisyphus, pushing the boulder up the hill, you know, just back down and then back up again. That's the struggle. What else are you going to do? And I think just like any audience probably would have walked into this movie expecting based on the song, based on seeing, I don't know who was on the original poster, whether it was Carlin and Richard Pryor or not, like it is now. They take the two biggest names in the movie and showcase them. And you think, well, it's it's these stand-up comics and this is going to be this totally zany film. It is those things, and then you're going to get a movie that gives you a final scene like that, and some of the the messaging that it does sprinkle in throughout, it's going to challenge you. There's something sort of subversive about this, and I wanted to ask you what you made of the character played by Antonio Fargas, the Lindy character, because as you speak to its self-awareness and what Michael Schultz as a filmmaker knows he is trying to do in terms of challenging his audience. He knows that he's going to get a predominantly black audience for this film. And he knows there has always been this friction. And it's a friction that I, I know still remains in the black community about what, what defines a man, what makes a man. And there is this conflict over homosexuality and you get a showdown finally between Lindy and between Abdullah. And you get, probably the most memorable moment or most memorable single quote in the film out of this exchange. I'm so tired of you running off at your mouth that's getting me down, honey. Why don't you just leave and be an assassin? Because the only thing you're good at shooting off is your big mouth. Would you please get out of my face, you sorry-looking Who are you calling sorry-looking? Can't y'all see that she ain't funny? She's just another poor example of how the system has of destroying our men. Honey, I am more man than you'll ever be and more woman than you'll ever get. So you can even look at Wikipedia and find that there are a couple names mentioned who are cultural critics, gay historians, who have written about this scene and about this movie. And there are lots of potential responses to it. And I certainly don't want to suggest that my response to it is the only take on this scene. But as I watch it, that is a moment that is all about making Bill Duke's character look feeble and small-minded. And I think in that way, too, that character is probably a reflection. That perception is probably a reflection of a lot of the audience members watching Car Wash in 1976. And they were challenged in the same way as Abdullah's character was. So that's an element of the movie that you could l- launch a very solid argument from completely opposite sides and and defend both both of them. I would agree that I think Lindy is given in that scene and really every other scene 
even the ones where her coworkers, you know, kind of whistle or laugh. I don't know. I feel like maybe they're laughing with her more even than yes. they're ever laughing at her. I and felt I think the same. And that scene in particular, um, you know, is definitely on her side. And so I do think you could make an argument that for 1976, it was progressive. Now, this goes back to like, who's coming up with these scenarios? Who's actually writing this dialogue? Is Are there moments where you could accuse, and Lindy isn't necessarily a part of this, but maybe some elements to her character are, could you accuse Car Wash of engaging in minstrelsy? As well, um, you know, amplifying certain cultural stereotypes for laughter or for the easy, you know, connection with an audience in bad faith that you can get from that. I could see someone making an argument that that is going on at points in Car Wash and maybe going on in the character of Lindy, too. I think for me, what it does come down to is, again, it's probably not all the way on one side or the other, but I do think what is common is an emphasis on dignity, even yeah. if these are comic characters. And, you know, Abdullah, I think the proof of that is that Abdullah is put in his place in that scene. Yet Abdullah is also the one, as I mentioned, who the film ends with to examine his dignity. This is a great point. He's not just a villain. He's there not are no the villain. villains here. Right. Right. He, he is a product of his environment. Yes. And he has to reconsider those notions just as many of us watching this movie have to have those notions challenged. So you're absolutely right. It's so much more complex to allow that character to have the moment where nobody gets burned really as badly as he does in that moment in the movie, in the entire movie. And right. then for it to ultimately end with such a poignant moment with that character is really telling. Yeah. So the through line I, I think is really is dignity throughout the movie. It, it may make some missteps here or there of its time that our others might rightly criticize as well, it's it's. I mean, the bottom line is it's a way more complicated in a good way movie than I think either of us were expecting. Yes, and if if that isn't enough to convince um, listeners to give it a shot, if they haven't already, I also just wanted to mention that it did make Slate's 2016 list of the 50 greatest films by black directors. That was compiled by our friend Aisha Harris and Dan Coyce, and they consulted. You know a whole roster of notable black critics and filmmakers and car wash made that list. So that's, that's to its credit as well. How about this fun fact too was in competition at can Oh, in 1977. No, I think Rossellini was the, the judge. It was in competition and another film by a black director didn't compete at can until Spike Lee. Huh? Wow. Would not have guessed yeah. that either. Huh? Fantastic. Car Wash is available to rent on demand on most platforms. If you've seen it and agree or disagree with our takes, email feedback at filmspotting.net. More on the 7 from 76 Best Year Ever series is at filmspotting.net slash 7 from 76. Next week, we will do our 7 from 76 awards. And yes, Sam, we will name our top five films of that year and more. That's our show, Josh. If you want to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, Adam is at FilmSpotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at FilmSpotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the FilmSpotting poll, what ensemble car movie should reunite the original cast for a sequel? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit FilmSpotting.net slash shop, and you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at FilmSpotting.net slash newsletter. Out in limited release this weekend, a movie, Josh, you have seen and that you can recommend, Holler. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, real quickly, I do want to point folks to this. It is set in contemporary Trump-era Ohio, 
stars Jessica Bardem as Ruth, a sharp high schooler who's living with her older brother. He's actually her guardian, and she talks her way into this illegal scrap operation when the two of them face eviction from their home. So basically, with a bunch of other young people who are similarly impoverished, she sneaks into these abandoned manufacturing facilities at night, strips them of copper, aluminum, other materials that they can sell. It's a debut, a feature debut for the writer-director, Nicole Regal. And what struck me especially about this is, even though it's contemporary, as I described, it has a Dickensian feel and a dystopian feel. There's something almost like when they're in these uh, faci- these factories at night and their flashlights are piercing the darkness, it, they fall across this machinery and mechanicals, looks like a crashed spaceship. There's something almost sci-fi about it. But then it's also very Dickensian in this like rabble, this group that's gotten together scrounging out in existence. So it's it's pretty strong, maybe more in terms of mood than necessarily in narrative. You can feel it's kind of driven a little bit by issues like factory layoffs and opioids too. Uh, but even that element gives a great a chance for a great supporting performance by Pamela Adlin. She plays Ruth's drug-addicted mother, who's who's in the midst of another stint in jail. So Ruth visits her a couple of times throughout the film. Adlin is just fantastic, brings, you know, a real exhausted authenticity to the film uh, as well. So yeah, a small one, uh, but worth checking out. That is Holler. Out in wide release in the Heights, also on HBO Max and Peter Rabbit 2, The Runaway. Next week, in addition to looking back at our entire 7 from 76 series, we hope we're going to get an advanced look at Pixar's Luca and give a few minutes to that. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.